This recording was made on Bundjalung country, Byron Shire, New South Wales. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. Ahoy, shipmates. Ahoy. You want to know something that happened to me while I was in Byron Bay, apart from, well, a couple of days before the conversation you're about to listen to? I rolled my ankle in the bush because I got distracted by a bloody piece of plastic. And that just seemed unfair to me. So I did the adult thing, which is to not sit down and ice it immediately and try and ward off the inflammation. No, I did the mature thing, which is to pretend it didn't happen and keep hobbling forwards through the main drag of Byron Bay past Chris Hemsworth eating an ice cream with his kids on the footpath. And I can tell he knew straight away that he was in the presence of a true story of courage. Chris, seriously, guys, Chris Hemsworth looked at me and he knew. He's thinking, now that is a fucking superhero. I've got to play that guy in a movie. So that was cool. And when you see Chris Hemsworth limping around on the big screen in a really badly ripped singlet and a ragged tweed bait bag hanging out of his closed fist, know that that was all me. Okay, what a ridiculous way to start this podcast. But look, I can't be an inspiration to Hollywood elites and also really good at just talking into thin air to nobody. I mean, I know you're listening, but you're not here right now, and it's quite a weird thing. Anyway, this is another conversation from my time up in Byron, and I know that The Crown is popular and everything, and everyone's bloody talking about it, but let me tell you, you're about to hear from some real non-fiction royalty. Wait, no. The Crown is non No, it's no, it is, but it's fiction though, isn't it? No. I mean this because Bob McTavish is literally the godfather of surfing. Seriously, if you don't know who he is, I mean, there might now that I've said that, there might be a few godfathers out there, but Bob's the one I spoke to. Bob's the one you're about to listen to. So as far as I'm concerned, he's it. The reason is, he's been surfing since the 50s. What have you been doing since the 50s? Were you even alive? I definitely wasn't. And that's the thing. Bob's been making surfboards for 30 years since before I was born. Even if you're not a surfer, I'm sure you can appreciate the level of mastery that you gain after 60 years of making surfboards. And the thing is, in my view, surfboards are actually really simple things. And I know that might sound like quite an insulting thing to say, I mean, particularly in advance of hearing from one of the world's greatest ever surfboard makers. I don't mean they're simple in terms of engineering. I know they're bloody complicated. I know the hydrodynamics involved are insane, as you will intermittently realize in listening to Bob talk over the next hour. But I mean that surfboards are simple in terms of purpose. Because for me, surfboards exist to enhance human connection with nature. And that's it. Because we definitely get carried away trying to score waves out of 10 or do some maneuver in front of a busy lineup. But I actually think that's all kind of 21st century static interference in something that's actually nothing more than the pursuit of good feelings in nature. So I I actually doubt Bob would refer to himself explicitly as an important environmentalist himself, but I actually think he is because he's facilitating so many people's relationship with the environment. And the ripple effect of that is insane. 
So I wanted to talk to Bob for this reason, but also another reason, and that reason is kind of the whole point of me doing this podcast, which is that I like talking to people about sustainability, definitely, but not as much as I like talking to people who are just absolutely frothing out on whatever it is they're doing. Because I've always had this thing like where I just crave passion in other people and I absorb it like bloody oxygen. I realized that really early on in my life that I'd actually prefer to talk to somebody who is really passionate about what they do, even if I vehemently disagree with their views, because they're emotionally and intellectually engaged and invested in the topic. And I prefer talking to those people much more than people who just don't really care all that much about anything. So self-talk is just me documenting those discussions according to my hypothesis that it's the features of the natural environment, whatever obscure feature that is, that exists across all these different things that people care about. My hypothesis is that it's the connection to nature rewarding these people, rewarding them with success, with inner peace and a deeply satiating connection to the earth. And surfing is an obvious arena where this plays out in a very compulsive and addictive fashion and serves the majority of people doing it with very happy lives. It ties into this thing that gets bandied about quite a lot in surfing. And I manage to forget it sometimes if the lineups are packed or if I'm performing, in inverted commas, short of what I think I'm capable of performing. The saying goes that the best surfer is the one having the most fun. And it's cliched, but it's true. It's a cliche for a reason. And you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who's extracted more fun from the ocean than Bob McTavish. Bob's had a wild life, and it's all been underpinned by this crazy level of passion. I love surfing. I mean, I go so far as to say I'm obsessed with surfing, but after talking to Bob, it's kind of dawned on me that what I feel is like a vague interest in surfing in comparison to how much ocean this man has lived and breathed in his 76 years. And not even just after talking to him, actually, but I've been reading his book. He doesn't know, but I bought it from his shop before we even sat down and after leaving, discovered that he signed it. So cheers, Bob. I'm going to go ahead and pretend you didn't sign any other books and that one's just for me. Um, But reading this book, I'm all the more gobsmacked by his level of devotion to the sea, the sacrifices he made for it and the dividends that it has now paid him. Because he's very upbeat in this book. It's a very, you know, it's a delightful romp through the bygone eras of surfcraft and whatnot. It's full of enviable sessions and shenanigans and what have you. But they've all transcended what seems to me to have been a really brutal reality, which is that the man was homeless. He was homeless and in debt for a long time in his youth, but didn't complain about it once because it let him do this one thing that he was so desperate to do all the time. Homeless and in debt, all in the name of being able to ride waves in the ocean as a singular priority above all else. Like, think about what you love doing the most, what you'd be doing every day if money wasn't a thing, and ask yourself whether you'd give up the roof above your head, the bed you're going to sleep in tonight, all of your financial security to keep doing it. Because that's what Bob did. And I reckon that this is where passion evolves into purpose. And I feel like living with purpose, this is the hypothesis, living with purpose, whatever the purpose might be, is what's going to save the world from all of its problems. Bob gave me a quick tour of the factory before we sat down, and it was like a real-life Studio Ghibli bloody wonderland. It's an absolute hive of productivity, 
McTavish surfboards are effectively functional pieces of art, so it was almost like being in an art museum that was producing its own pieces. And it's all grown from Bob's absolute refusal to compromise on the importance of surfing in the 1950s and 60s. Surfing at every available opportunity, whether that meant sleeping on couches or in cars or literally underneath cars, constantly owing money to all sorts of people and eating nothing but bread and bananas, now amounting in 2020 to this absolute temple of stoke in the industrial district of Byron. So if you surf, probably most of what I said you already knew, but if you didn't know that stuff, or if you don't surf, please understand that I'm not exaggerating when I say Bob McTavish is one of the most important figures in surf history. So sitting down for a one-to-one in his personal shaping bay was a privilege I will not forget. So thanks again, Bob, for being so generous with your time and letting me and the rest of you dirtbags out there absorb some of the electricity. We'll debrief again at the end as usual, but until then, guys, enjoy. Something really thick, semi-gun template, it's a copy of a board that I called Best back in 1964 and I'd just come back from Hawaii after stowing away and I just jumped in the shaping room at Wallace's and just churned this thing out and I wrote it from January to August of 1964 and I never had another board like it until I made this one. Wow. And that it's called Best, it's got um, three stringers, it's heavy and it's a semi-gun template. And I've only surfed it twice, three times, and um, it's in the car now. So I'm looking for a way to load this up. It's going to be small, but I'll find something. Yep, yep. And the other one I'm writing is a slightly updated original, which is a thing I shaped in 1994 for the first time. It was moulded by Surf Tech in 1996, and they sold thousands of them. I collected a royalty off it, and it's been hard to beat. It's got four channels up in the two-thirds from the tail, it's got a pair of channels, so yeah. in the trim zone, it's got channels that you can pump and work and drive through dead water. It's got big hips in the tail, tri-thin, super rabbit, radical pivot, double concaves into the back foot, good tail rocker, so it's very versatile, very light, single six-ounce class job, um, and it's extremely versatile, and it's, it's got a Super loose tail with a very strong trim zone, two thirds forward, mm. which is an unusual combo. You just don't see them around, you know. Yeah, that works unreal. This is amazing though, because you've been you must have been seventy six. You're seventy six, right? Yeah, so and so you're still hunting after these like oh yeah you know, weird new feelings and ideas and totally. stuff that hasn't been done before. Well, it's my job. Um, in um, when I gave up competitive surfing in nineteen sixty seven, I made the decision that. This is my future. I've got to surf to feel surfboards. I don't I surf that fun, of course, but my, every time I hit the water, I've got to, something to try, something to experiment, yeah. and to understand the feelings in surfboards. And I could, with shortboards up until probably the late 80s, and then since then, it's just anything over six, six, seven foot, I can feel and understand and, and know what they're doing. Mm. And my son takes over on the the sub six six. Right, so he's doing all your fishes, and a yeah. mate of mine just bought a Vinny actually. And he great board. Loves it. What a great board! Loves yeah. it. Yeah. And it's got this beautiful high gloss finish on it. It's a deep red color. It's just like such a beautiful shape. Well, the key to it is that the tail. It's only sixteen inch, one foot up, so it's not a super wide tail. Mm. And so you haven't got to move your foot 
compared to a lot of twin fins and fishes. Yeah, so it just right. keeps his foot planted in one spot over the fins. Easy, easily rocks into forehand turn to cut back, you know, bottom turn to cut back, forehand back and forehand back and transition just super quick because it's relatively narrow in the back end. Yeah, okay, because that's something I've always wondered about swallowtails is they make for a really nice aesthetic, but some mm. swallowtails I see where it feels like between the ball of your foot and your heel, there's no way you're gonna be on top of the fins and they're so wide and then you sort of like... You've got to move your foot. You've got to move your foot, but that's just another sort of level of dexterity which seems to be beyond people like me. Well, more than, that, more than that, it's an unnecessary pitfall. It's potential yeah, for yeah. error. Yeah, so no, that's why that dinghy is such a successful twin fin because its tail is narrow enough that you don't move your foot. I haven't actually had a good look at it, but the fin's quite far back yeah, as well. quite far back, which yeah. means your foot's further back, which yeah. is on the narrower part of the tail. Yeah. And I imagine if the fins are too far forward, then it's exacerbating that problem of needing to put your weight, move your feet around and try and figure out exactly. to get those fins to engage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So what's the most exciting innovation in, in your boards at the moment or in boards in general? In general, right now? I'd be really surprised if you say foils. Foils? Yeah. Um, We've seen a few of them yeah. around. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by foil boarding, but I think the I think they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> not, in, not in the surf, no. I just think the concept of a single stem onto two planing elements is mm. is not good science. You, I mean, two stems, one in front of each other, brings it back into the realms of motorbikes and um, well, surfboards, where it's between your feet. Mm. You know, you're mm. a back foot, front foot function. And I think the single stem reduces that. So okay. I think it, I think two stems will be the breakthrough when it happens. That's my theory. Yeah. And perhaps three separate foils. So that it gives instant stability and instant maneuverability. Yeah. And the balance in between them. Balance sort of between. Mm. Yeah. Right. But see, with, with foils, we um, when we got into windsurfing back in the late seventies, the first windsurfing book that came out was called The Wind Is Free. And on the front cover, it showed a very fine Floridian surfer and sailor on a foil board back in 1969, 79. So he's up on foils. So we immediately raced out and made foil boards to experiment, like in 1969, 79. And we found that they had a top speed, and it was 25 knots. And they could hit 25 knots, like you'd start planing at about 12 knots, and then 15, 18, you're planning high. By 25 knots, you've hit maximum speed. And you cannot go any faster. Really? And it's because, the same reason that they ditched the Manly Ferry, which used to be a hydrofoil, because the energy it takes to lift a foil is much greater than planing, because it's working on airfoil principles where the high pressure on, uh, on the bottom counter is playing with the low pressure on the top of the foil. That's how you generate your lift. But that means you've got to be wet both sides of the foil. Whereas planing, like a surfboard, where it's skimming over the surface, is limitless with its top speed. And that's been proven by all the speed trials they've done with sailboards right through the 70s, 80s and 90s and the speed trials. And the 25 knot record was smashed really early. Wow. You're like in the mid 80s. That's fascinating. I thought, um, sorry, I do want to no, get right. your answer. No, it's a very good detour. Current, uh, current 
current surfboards and yeah. stuff and off foils, but I was under the impression that A, Led Hamilton invented the things with some yacht company, and B, that the whole idea is that they're going to eliminate chop in big waves, and that's their big frontier, is their ability in big waves. So that fascinates me that there's a top speed. Well, if we start, they were invented by a Floridian again, and uh, a SeaWorld, one of the guys working at SeaWorld invented the thing back in 1968, 69. Right. And he used to sit on a chair on a foil and get towed around by a boat. And they did the same thing in SeaWorld and at the Gold Coast in their 70s. So they, they were using foils, water skiing ever since. And when Laird, all he took was the exact same design from the late 60s and then strapped some boots on it, mm. which was going to be the way the bindings that they seemed necessary at the time. And so no, there hasn't been any improvement since the 60s. Wow. But by the 80s, with much more power with windsurfing, we found the top out was at 25 knots because then the induced drag from lifting for a fully submerged foil took over from the speed that you've got from reducing your wetted surfaces. Right, like a diminishing return type thing. Exactly, and the crossover point was 25 knots. Right. So uh, speed windsurfers, they first they went really narrow, which was dumb. They had control, but they were settling into the water too much. Then they went to double concave and wide speed windsurfers, like short, wide, hovering. Mm. But then the fins were cavitating, which they were going so fast that they were literally boiling the water. Wow. Because the pressure was so low on the backside of the fin, you know how water boils on the top of a mountain range at Different. 30 degrees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were boiling the water behind the fins. No way. Yeah, and we had to find a way to stop that, which we did by mounting a small fin in front of the main fin. Um, then, and, and cap, that was ventilation, that was cavitation, but ventilation was also where you get surface air running down the back of the fin as you're skipping over chop, and that's what Laird and company were trying to do, yeah. was to prevent cavitation yeah. from introducing air down onto the low pressure side of the foil okay. or the fin. But we found ways to do fences solve that problem. And I moulded a fin in the 80s that sold millions all over the world was a, a nice tuna shaped thing, but it had two fences on it to stop the air tracking down, which I stole off Manly Ferry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's stealing when you're transitioning industries from you know passenger ferries across the water to yeah. surfboards. But yeah. Yeah, okay. But at the same time, I was, I was, had, I'd started a little business called Aviation Fiberglass because I was regarded as the old, old shaper. Who wants an old shaper? In, the late 70s and early 80s, so I'd deviated to windsurfing and the technology associated with windsurfing, with moulding techniques and stuff. And so um, I was out in that group, you know, I was off the side of surfing, doing all the alternate interesting stuff of uh, vacuum bagging and venison laminations. And yeah, so I was in that late 70s into the 90s. I was a, making a lot of aircraft parts, moulded surfboards, moulded windsurfers, toying with all those interesting technologies, and even down to clamshell moulding of surfboards so that there was no waste. Everything that was closed in the mould, mm. so there was no, no nothing to throw away. Mm. So environmentally, much nicer, yeah, yeah. much stronger, and so they were. That ended up becoming surf tech. 
boy out of Santa Cruz, but made in Thailand. And a lot of wonderful, strong surfboards made through that era. Mm. People are surfing today. Yeah. A 20 year old, 25 year old. You just said something really interesting about people not being interested in an old shaper in the yeah. 70s or 80s. Yeah, so in the late 70s, early 80s. We've arrived at a complete opposite of that, where, I mean, you're revered and your boards are revered above sort of all else. You're the godfather of surfboard shaping. Well, I got a good break, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, like, is that why, maybe? Because you persevered and proved it over time that there's, there's no substitute for experience and for, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know, it's hard to put a word around it when it's something like creative, like surfboards. It, yeah. it's, it's an ingenuity which isn't really quantifiable, but I yeah. like that it's kind of come full circle now. And I, like if I wanted a board, older the better. I feel like I don't want some grom who hasn't actually yeah. experimented or had the experience to make me a board compared to someone who has walked the talk. Well, I think <clears throat> um, I've had a passion, obviously, we can talk about that in a minute, but I really did hit, hit my feet with um, me and my partner, Ben Wallace. He started in this factory on the broom. Mm. The only job he's ever had is working here at McCovish. Wow. And he started sweeping the floor. Now he's a general manager and a major partner, shareholder. And uh, we get on just unbelievable. And he's given me room to develop and go for it. I can shape anything I want, anytime I want get someone get in the water under pit right his feet but more than that he's got a we've got a marketing team who know how to put the brakes on me as well yeah right <laughs> and, and to see good ideas and run with them and to hold back on the ones that aren't so good maybe too radical yeah yeah yeah, yeah right. exactly yeah but I think it's got to be driven by passion yeah and can I talk about that for a minute please okay, <laughs> okay so when we um, I thought about this last night, I was going to do this interview with you, I said what topics should we hit on and um, I wanted to talk about the 60s and the goods and the bads and uh, I saw my first surf movie in 1961, I was 17 years old, I was already a very keen surfer but I was working for a radio station in Brisbane and I, was, I got the sack because I wasn't showing up on Mondays. I was extending my weekends because, you know, Brisbane's no place to be. I was in the surf club at Caloundra. And so I got the sack in like January of 61 and I was sleeping in the first aid room. And um, I was a seven day a week surfer. And I was working at the bakery at nights to make a few bob. Get some free food, I imagine. Free food and I had free rent. Didn't eat much. It was no doll, so why bother? You know, like you get three, three pounds a month if you tried hard, but right. I didn't bother to go to the police station and register. So. And I was getting by, and one day I rescued a girl swimming because there was no, no surf club through the week. And I was there, so I paddled out my board and saved this girl. And her parents gave me 10 pounds, and well, that lasted me at least a month. Wow. You know, so that sort of thing you could get by and the guy at the bakery, I'd you know, take away a loaf of bread every day and he'd slip me 10 shillings or something every couple of days. I'd have to go and get a few beers. Yeah. Right. yeah. But I was a full-time surfer. Then I saw the first surf movie, which was Bruce Brown. I missed John Severson when he came out here in 59 and he, was, he only went to Sydney. But when I saw Bruce Brown came through with Phil Edwards in 61, 
no, filming surfing hollow days, but they showed Sleepy When Wet and Barefoot Adventure, his two previous movies, at a theatre in Brisbane at, called New Farm. In those days, movie theatres were massive. It held 1,200 people. Really? I mean, a theatre now is lucky to hold 300. Yeah. So they were, they, yes, they, were, they had 1,200 people in the New Farm Theatre for one night only. The buzz was around, and every surf club guy in Brisbane, which was Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast, because there was no, no, no work on the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast, all the clubbies yeah, sure. were working in Brisbane. So they descended on this theatre on, like, on a Tuesday night, and I drove down in a beat up old piece of crap I was driving, 17. I had a crappy old car, and Austin A40, mm -hmm. and I rolled in for the night to see this film, and I, I, from that day onwards, I just became a dedicated surf nut. I was going to be a full-time surfer after that night. No matter, matter what. No matter what. This, this is it. And when I say a full-time surfer, that's been seven days a week, every day of your life, you are going to be where the best surf is that you can reasonably access. I love that definition, yeah. Okay, so that was, that's how strong your commitment was. Yeah, yeah. It's cast your fate to the wind, we're going to go surfing. I'm surfing. And I'd already made myself a balsa board by that stage, and I was riding my first little 6.6 made by a freak little board, a 6.6. When everyone else was on 9.6 and 10 foot, I had a 6.6 because it was cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and the only board I ever bought in my life, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was um, 21 pounds. A regular board was 26 pounds. Wow. So I bought a Gordon Woods. They call it a goose board, I think, because I was going to be the goose that bought it. And I rode this thing, and I think I was the only other surfer except for a guy called Jim Foley in Santa Cruz who was riding a 6.6 as well. I caught up to Jim 10 years ago. Anyway, point. We, surfers, a full-time surfer was someone who was available to hit the water every day, which that was reasonably accessible. So where do they possibly, how could they survive? Well, they were surfboard factory workers. And the bosses had an addiction themselves, so they understood. Mm. And what you didn't shape that day, you'd pick up the next day or that night, you know? so. Shaking became the natural home of the addicted surfer, and, the, and glasses too, you know? Yeah, right. Okay, so there was only, in Sydney, I was in Sydney at this stage, working at Brookvale, so luminaries, like say Midget Farrelly, he was, he could shake, surf anytime he wanted, then come back and shake. I was following his copy, I was copying him, I was shaping and surfing wherever I wanted, and then come back and do it at night or the next day. So it was a tremendous commitment to become a full-time surfer, a massive commitment. There was no goal to speak of. Like and only one job you could do. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of a couple of others. There was a guy got a surf report thing going. Oh, yeah. He was pretty smart, and that's worked well for quite a few of our yeah, friends. Yeah. There was um, a musician who had night gigs, and like over in the city, and they'd surf daytime a fair bit. A couple of barmen could do their mornings, surf mornings, and if they discipline themselves, get to bed after midnight. Mm. But the opening hours then were only open until 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So a few barmen could be regular surfers. But the congregation that would get together at, at DY every morning, seven days a week, were 80% surfboard builders. 
and 20% these other characters. Sometimes the students could pull time, you know, like university students. But they were the, the commitment, not like now, you know, like it was, you really did throw your fate to the wind. Mm -hmm. But then that was good for 61, 62, 63, 64, like discovered Noosa, was, I was able to work up Alexandra Heads and get right into that. But then by 67, I started to travel to Hawaii to extend that concept of being where the best surf is mm. all the time. Just changing your definition of what's reasonably accessible. Yes. Like, well, there's boats. Well, I had to stay away the first time. Yeah, I remember reading Okay, so then the next time I got sponsored by a movie that was showing, uh, they were filming the Shortboard Revolution, so they bought me a ticket. The year after that, I was designing for Maury Pope, a simple company in California, so they, I, they got me a ticket. The year after that, it was someone else, and I never paid for a ticket, but I was always in Hawaii in November, December, and I was always in California in January, February, to get Rincon and all the quality breaks there. So you just extended the concept of being available. Yeah, yeah. Still getting your tickets paid somehow, you know. Yeah, yeah. Midget, meantime, had become a champion and was collecting royalties on various things, and ran his own support business and stuff, he was clever. Nat, Nat was sponsorship from the get-go. Right. Okay, that, was that, that was just the dream, obviously, straight away, is to achieve... Well, the word didn't exist, sponsorship. Right, right. right. But Nat's parents basically sponsored him. Right. As did Mark Richards' parents. I mean, Mark was... A, I would consider Mark to, to be the second professional surfer in the world, or in Australia. The first one was Nat Young. Sponsored by his folks. I like that. That's almost like there's more professional surfers in Australia in 2020 than ever before. Sponsored by Job Seeker. Yeah, right, like right. Everyone's got a sponsor now. Okay, so, so Mighty Nat, he never made surfboards much or made He had a bit of a retail business later. But basically he cruised through the 60s and 70s collecting royalties, getting tickets, getting bought around the joint. And he was, you know, fully sponsored. He didn't have, didn't have to hold a job down ever. Mm. And good luck to him. Mm. And then uh, Mark Richards, exactly the same. Ray, his dad, wonderful couple, his mum and dad, only son. And they just they drove him everywhere. Like after school, they'd take him to the best break after school, before school, after school, every day. He's a ticket to Hawaii, get over there, son. You know, awesome. feel the joint out. And so. Been many parents like that in that era. Uh, yeah, Ray was exceptional. His, his dad was a wonderful guy. Mm. And they did very well out of surfboards. They had a car dealership in the main street of. Uh, Street in Newcastle, and they switched that into a surfboard shop which ran up until what, ten years, five, six years ago and collapsed. So, yeah, they, you know, they, they were fully sponsored and they were just seven days a week surfers. But both Nat and Mark had an eye on winning, and um, I've always held that um, sport is measurable and you can got to kick between the posts or cover the distance in a certain across distance. Across the line. Yeah. Across, the ball across the line. So, whereas art is unmeasurable, and uh, surfing to me has always been an art, and so I deviated, I left competitive surfing at, in 1967, when I was, I'd been in three years of events, Queensland titles, Australian titles, a couple of years. I got a ticket to the Duke contest in Hawaii, and that was it for me for contests. I just wanted to develop the art of surfing mm. and surfboards. Mm. So that was, uh, but so the, the main point I'm trying to drive home is that 
the commitment to being a full-time surfer in the 60s was a big step, a big commitment. And you, know, you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, basically, for the first couple of years, through 62, 63, 64. Until I, then I developed a shaping skill, and bang, out of nowhere, I had a skill, which became a profession. Yeah. And stayed with me ever since, and the reason I could survive those rough years of the late 70s and early 80s when all shapers weren't in demand um, and I went off into aircraft parts and moulded boards and stuff. It was really healthy because I learnt a lot about techniques, materials and design. Do you know that like a straight rocket board on flat water is slower than a board guitar rocker? I didn't know that. No, I didn't know either until we'd been through the mill and speed trials and timing things. Yeah, because wow. you need to replace the water to the surface as you pass through it. You don't want to dig a trough in the water. You do dig a trough, but then you feed the water back onto the surface again. Yeah, right. So you don't induce any drag and you're not throwing spray, which is energy loss. Yeah, yeah. So things like that, you know, and then so that, that translates into tail rocker and surfboards. To fully understand how tail rocker works on the surfboard, you have to understand that it's not a slow down thing. It's, it's actually a way to replace the water back on the surface. Yeah, right, so replacement is the displacement almost of the Correct. water. Spot on, you displace and replace. Yeah, interesting. Mm. I like this because um, I've been called a really, like I'm 29, I've been called a grumpy old man by a lot of friends because <laughs> when people say to me, I used to surf, it always upsets me because I'm like, well, you obviously never surfed. If you yeah. say you used to surf, yeah. you never surfed in you, the way you never got it. No, it's like, it wasn't surfing life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that sounds really diluted compared to what you're talking about. But I mean, I've just spent three months in, in the territory, in the centre. No reception. Every time you get Wi-Fi, I realise that the first thing I'm checking is the swell report. <laughs> like, it's got nothing to do with me. I'm not there. I can't access it or anything. But I'm so wired to just be like obsessed and compelled Beyond well, that's my it. Ability, like to do anything about it. Yeah, that, that's it. That, that, that is a key element of a surfer. You know what's going on in the weather, and you know what's going on in your local breaks, even if you're away working, other commitments. I mean, priorities came in for me when I started having babies, my wife started having babies, and then you start to go, wait a minute, I can't go now. I've had to confront that wall, you know? Mm. And it took me probably 20 years of marriage to, to actually climb that wall, really accepting that I cannot be there. Right. I was the grumpy old man for 20 years. You know, Your first big influence, like a disruption of your surf routine. Exactly, which was a very selfish thing, I think, back, you know. But it, fortunately, I had a career spin out of it. But back to that, I'm saying that a surfer is a guy now who knows what's going on at the ocean, mm. you know, and he knows the weather. I know that suddenly change came through yeah. a couple of hours ago. I've been in here shaving, I know the suddenly going through. I've been thinking the same thing, low tide's going to drop out, hopefully the uh, yeah. session's going to be on. Yeah, it's six o'clock low. Yeah, yeah I'll be yeah. hunting down. I know where it'll take this little baby north swell. Yeah. I know which banks have got it right now. It's so subconscious, but at the same time, it's so intentional. Yeah. It's like not that much stuff like that. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Because yeah, we're in yeah, tune yeah. with the climate, we're in tune with the weather. I mean, really in tune with it. Well, it just gives me continuity in my life in yes. so many ways. Where it's, it's a soundtrack. Yeah, 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 totally. Mm. And it's just, 
especially in a year like 2020 where there's been so much craziness and you know another curveball around the corner every Monday morning. It's like, well, what the hell's happened in the world this week? Yeah. Knowing, being in tune with the weather and, and the climate and, and the surf and the ocean is just this like, soundtrack's a really good word for it actually. Mm. I might borrow that in the future. Please, yeah, okay. I've never heard of it before. It's, yeah. it's original. I go with it. Because <laughs> yeah, it's really comforting. But it's just made me think about a funny thing because to anyone who doesn't surf, what we're talking about right now probably sounds like a full-blown addiction. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's funny to think about addiction being uh, a mental illness. Yeah. By bringing me and by the sounds of it, you so much yeah. peace and, and Fit. mental sort of fitness. fitness. <laughs> yeah. It's the most kind of counterintuitive thing to yeah. think about. Well, I think humans are supposed to be like that. Yeah. I think it's the city life, electronic life that clouds it out. But mm. I'm surely we're designed to fit in with the natural cycles and what's happening in the, you know, our momentary environment right now, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I notice it, in a, the only other place I notice it quite as profoundly in my life is in my sleep, when I manage to line it up with the sun. Yeah. And actually go pursue a yeah, great. and realise like... Crash when it's dark and wake when it's light. First light with the birds, yeah, yeah. exactly. And realise like, wow, I'm actually... It's like you're on drugs. It's like the addiction is <laughs> sort of you, whatever it is. Like yeah, you've you've just, you've elevated, you know, yeah. you're just like tuned, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't get that privilege much. <laughs> I've, been in, I've been in a tent mostly, so it's kind oh, of been wow. privilege. That's right? awesome. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, when you're camping, you do that. Yeah. It just yeah, comes yeah. naturally, doesn't it? Yeah. You throw yourself into the environmental deep end. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah. I just feel, I feel a lot better when I do it. It's hard because you can't measure it. It's yeah. impossible to prove. Yeah. And impossible to convince anybody of it, yeah. short of them actually going out and trying it. I'm convinced. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that actually um, made me just remember one big question that I wanted to ask you, which is something that I've been thinking about all year. and the last however many years, but mostly this year, in the amount of people in the lineup now, yeah. how busy, uh, how, how much surfing has exploded yep. with COVID, with shutdowns and everything else. Incredible. And it's made me think, I was at a, um, a charity function last year, a screening of the AI doco, Kiss by God, talking about mental health. Oh. And, um, and one of the discussion points was about how if I know, every time I paddle out, I know that surfing is making me a nicer person when I get back, a more calm, patient, measured person. And I think to myself, if, if the world is this horrible, dystopian place at the moment, wouldn't it be so much better if everyone surfed and everyone felt this thing that I feel? But then I'm a human being and I'm a selfish human being as well at the same time and I don't want to share any more waves that I'm already sharing. Right. So I'm really interested to know from, uh, from a man of your vintage who's had so yeah. many surf sessions, how you reconcile that and what your take on that is about needing to share the stoke but also get your fill at the same time. Okay, grand view. I think this, uh, the planet, the coastlines and the entire earth are a playground for humans. Mm. And it's a gift for everyone to enjoy. And so, you know, one foot is up in behind the islands in Brisbane in the bay, or if it's you know, 20 footers, occasionally one minute. It's a gift for us humans to engage with and have a lot of fun with. It's, it's wonderful, it's universal, it's all over the planet, and so go for it. But it, it's, we live in a time when um, 
We're very, very rich in some countries and terribly poor in others. And Australia is very rich. I, I used to see in California when I travelled there in the 60s how wealthy they were. So many young people could go surfing every day and how they make their money. Well, you turn out to trust fund kids. You know, mm. Parents are divorced, but they're rich and they're just paying sponsored. kids money. Yeah, we're sponsored. Yeah. And like that, mm. like Richard. Mm. <laughs> but there were thousands of them in Cali back then. But now it's the same here. And there's a trickle-down effect from the wealth of our community is allowed surfers now to be surfing seven days a week. So yes, it's crowded. The, the, so I think the positive side of all that is, yeah, it's what a wonderful, refreshing thing it is to be able to go surfing. And mm -hmm. as you said, as you described it. But once people hit the water, I think there was more aggression in the water back in back in the bad old days, I think in the 70s and 80s. Really? Yeah, I think there was more aggression. For a start, there's, if you go out to Wadigos now, 60% of the surfers are girls, mm. and they're not aggro, mm. they're more mellow, and there's, there's not this testosterone battle going on. That's much nicer. You go around the corner of the pass, they can, they're still fighting it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you drop down inside the pass into Clark's, so it's all mellow down there, you know, and Tomo's Rocks, it's a mellow crew. So there are mature pockets of surfing where everyone's having fun and there's no aggro because it's mature. Mm. I think Malibu is a great example. It's been crowded since 1960. But you can still go to Malibu and, it's a, and have a chat and a glide and a couple of people sharing a wave and everyone gets something mm. and nobody gets too much. Mm. And that's the same with the pass and water goes, except it's crowded, you'll get something. And you might not get the wave of the day, someone else might. Well, you might not get it to yourself. No, you might get it to yourself, someone you might just share the wave, which I don't mind at all. Me neither. It's good fun. Yeah. yeah. As long I'm as you're not by a bloke who thought otherwise it might have got that, even though he looked to my mate, but uh, Well he's very immature. That's what I was sort of thinking, yeah. honestly, because it's not what I'm at before, but <laughs> the mature yeah. surfers will well I've got a very good friend in town here, Mal, who's worked for us for the last twenty five years. But he he surfs the left at what he goes. Mm. He's the only one hunting the left, you know. Yeah. It might be short, but they're there. Yeah, yeah. And he gets plenty. I've been riding a finless alaya that I made yeah. myself for the same reason, thinking the most uncrowded way to the perfect ways for this sport. It's yeah. like the best cheat code. Yeah, right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So the, 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 it's finding ways under the nose of the crowds is one of my specialties. Yeah. And but I, generally I do it through geography. I'm I'm, I'm trolling from Lennox to Balonjal. And those of the 22 breaks I know in that stretch, I'm onto them and yeah. where the movements are. I don't go to too much trouble. I don't go to, I never go down the back beaches behind Broken Head, it's all too hard. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I know exactly what the banks are doing at Broken, and then Derek's next one, and then along the beach at Suffolk, I know the, where the peaks are working, and I know what's happening up in the corner of Tallows, off the tip of the Cape, and then mm -hmm. what bank's happening a little water goes, or out on the rocks. and. So I'm, I'm, I'm on to all these little spots and when they fire, I can usually hit them at the right time because work's flexible here. Yeah. But I, it's generally only five days a week because the weekends my wife likes to do things, we have family and kids and grandkids and so I've, for the last 18 months or 12, two years I've just made a commitment I'll just do whatever my wife wants to do on the weekends. So that's one way to avoid crowds. Yeah, <laughs> well yeah. it used to be. Yeah, yeah. But now in the bay here it's Monday crowded to seven. Monday to Friday. Gentlemen's hours work well for the last 20 years, like no early, so I just go to wait till 8.30, yep. 
you know, then the, the cool school kids are all gone, the tradies are all gone. I mean, from 8 o'clock onwards, it's, there's a, there was a nice lull at that stage, but now in Byron Bay, well, there's hundreds of retired or wealthy gentlemen who will go surfing at that time. Yeah, it's too many gentlemen for the gentlemen's hours now. Yep, there is. Yeah. So now we've got to look between the cracks still, but I'm proud to say that, say, the last 10 surfs I've had over the last couple of weeks, um, biggest crowd was six, seven people. Really? Yeah, just wow. by being foxy, you know. So what you're saying is that just dialing it in, there's enough to go around. Yes, yeah, there is. If, yeah. if you've got a mature viewpoint, mm. and you, you go out hoping for five waves, it used to be minimum ten once, but mm. now it's down to five. But that's okay, you know, five good waves, or five pretty good waves is enough to give you a stoke. It'll yeah. carry you for a day or two. Yeah, but does that, um, because you've, you've lived and surfed through discovery of these amazing waves, and I'm assuming yeah. you've had more uncrowded sessions than anyone else on the planet. Probably, yeah. And, and so I wonder whether that it makes you wistful for the bygone era, or, or just thankful for it and happy to concede five waves instead of ten nowadays. I got to tell you the other day, only within the last month, I surfed this little funny little pocket that was firing exactly on the high tide, invisible from the roads, and I got it by myself, extremely good, mm. but only you know, waist high to shoulder high, and it, it just perfect when, within the last month, and to me it was as good as surfing any time in history. Really? Yeah, because really? I was by myself, most pleasant day. Yeah. And it was just a couple of people swimming, you know, body I love surfing. Because it'd be so easy for you to say, like, oh, yeah, but it wasn't like, you know, no. winter of Noosa 72 no. and there was one other done way out and it was double overhead. And you can't be nostalgic. The world keeps moving. But so many people are, though, Bob. Like, in my yeah. lineup at home, I bounce around on the northern beaches because it's kind of hard to. Same yep. thing, like, yeah, Northern Beaches is awesome. It's awesome, but you're selling yourself short if you only surf one spot. For yeah, oh, totally. Days. Anywhere between the Bower and Palm Beach for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. but one thing I've always hear tossed around in the lineup, which I've tried, I can't really reconcile, is people saying, oh, you know, not as good as it used to, no. not like it was in the old days, but then also saying in the same breath, oh, you know, kids have never had it so good. And yeah. it's like, well, Choose one of those things. Yeah, you, can't, yeah. you can't say both of them right now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't think the patterns have changed. I don't think the surf was better back then. I think it's just as good as it's ever been, just the same. East Coast Australia is just full of variety. You've got to be on the ball for variety. Mm. And you've got to be able to hop, skip, and jump. You've got to be quick. You know, the banks yeah. are good, tides right, Ooh, you know, winds just shifted. You know, you've got to, that's, that's East Coast Australia surfing. Yeah. And it involves your geography and your weather, you know. But now, no point in being miserable where surfing Noosa, wishing there were friends out with you, which is well, my first experience at Noosa. Really? You were out there wishing you had mates? Yeah, 1959, December 59, I was wow. just me and Pa Bendel. And yeah, I caught a long way through Nationals into Johnson's and turned around to paddle and I think, you know, six, seven hundred metres further out there's old Pa Bendel. I'm by myself paddling out from Johnson's. Going, That's the longest way I've ever ridden. It's over sand. This forest comes down to the water. Oh, Man, I wish I had some friends here with me. Mm -hmm. You know, Pa was fine. He was a great old guy, but there's only two of us. You know, I needed company. Yeah, you know, you want to share point. the buzz. 
Yeah, it's a, but then that just gets to this crazy 2020 level of like with 300 other people in the lineup that's okay. sharing it with a few too many. Okay, secret. My wife and I ran up to Noosa just, just, just before Anna closed the border, like literally the day before. Oh, nice. Landed at Noosa, border was closed, so there are no southerners at all. Only Queenslanders up there in, what was that, July or August? So it, it was, was August. August. So I got up here and they just shut the border. Okay. I just missed it. Okay, so there's no, there was, there was, there's no surf at Noosa in August. Everyone knows that. So what do we encounter? The most insane sandbank, a beautiful little trickly northeast swell sliding in. My wife and I surfing Johnson's with one other surfer yeah. and a couple of people on stand-ups at the Alberta National. We surfed it for a couple of hours by ourselves going, isn't this amazing? Mm -hmm. isn't this, this is just like the 70s. Mm -hmm. When all the short boarders had to go around and surf Sunshine, when we used to surf Nuso in, in the 70s when there was no one surfing longboards. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the most uncredited at Nusa was the 70s. Yeah. And again, in August this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a solo session at Noosa myself a few weeks ago, but only because I was happy, only because I had a finless board that I yeah, could yeah. on the rocks, basically. Right. Just right, a half a foot wave, yeah. skimming over the top, and then... Isn't that awesome? But yeah, it is awesome because yeah. I still got the same thing of like yeah. floating around, sand under my feet, looking up at that crazy, magnificent park, just like spilling down to the water, and no one around. Fantastic. It's just magic. Isn't it a treat? Yeah. And that those treats still exist in surfing. Yeah. You know, that, that's why yeah. you've got you're flexy with the material, with the product you're riding, the boards, and that's why we all have quivers now too. So you can ride something in those conditions, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's good on you for hunting. And, and that, that's, like I did an article in one of the surf magazines in the 70s called The Surf Pirate because I was already having to pounce in between the crowds and grab a few, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that was 40 years ago. So here we are with the density of crowds now and, and the plus all the phone, you know, technology to find waves. But there are so many times when they miss it, you know, all the web forecasts mm. on it. I mean, they, they miss those swells that come from Tahiti. Yeah, I've actually got like, there's a couple of sites that I know there's slight defects in whatever algorithm is yeah. producing the forecast. So I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, for saying that, yeah. it's probably not that, but this means this, and I'll go there, and isn't no one that, else will know about isn't it. Isn't that cool? Oh, it's the best thing. Oh, man, and they're, they're really, the, I know the sites I follow, that they miss those swells that come from way, way out. And like, I don't know, Christmas last year, we had a six-week east swell. Mm. The noose must be off it, right? But we had a six-week east swell wrapping in here, but it was not, none of the forecasts had it. They had South Swell, North Swell, all the local stuff. But they missed the one that was coming from so far out. And you just, I mean, it was a 18-second swell. That's the magic of those long period swells. Yeah, that they come from so far. So far, and, and on the models are apparently two foot, but yeah. in the 18-second period, that's, yeah. that's five, four the, or five foot. You've got the grunt, and you find the right spot. Yeah. And you, and you know the pattern day by day, you're going, going to be great at 10 o'clock tomorrow, you know, because yeah. that swell pattern and the wind's going to shift and blah, blah, blah. And so that, that sort of thing keeps the buzz going, yeah. you know, that you're hunting in amongst the technology. Yeah. You know, you're even yeah. trying to cheat the technology to get waves. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool. I've not surfed that many serious long period swells. Mm. I was in 
uh, chilling in the off season, still wow. surfing, um, yeah. but managed to get two back to back 20, one was 20, the other was 22 seconds oh, swells at man. Punta de Lobos. And the feeling of being in a long period swell like that is really different. Like, yeah. I remember wiping out on a, I think the first swell was maybe four foot, it was a, like just over overhead, yeah. but by 20 seconds. And yeah. I remember wiping out, and it was one of the most vicious beatings I've ever had. And it was just like this pair of hands on my shoulders just like suck me down. Yeah. It was like, no, you sit and you get yeah. beaten up because this is something you haven't dealt with before. <laughs> but it keeps it up, it keeps yeah. the pressure up. Yeah, 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 yeah. That feeling is just like... Yeah, whereas East Coast Australia, usually with a six or eight seconds, well, yeah. boom, bang, boom, yeah, yeah. back up, pop yeah, up, yeah, 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 move exactly. on, next. It's like a cork and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's... That's some, classic. There's something about long period that is kind of yet to be, I feel like, I'm not a meteorologist or a forecaster, but I feel like it's yet to be dialed in what that magic is yeah, and how it manages to amplify exactly. energy and I think you just said your amps, I think it's an amplifier, I think it's got amps, you know, like there's voltage and amps and I think mm. those guys have got, they're all, like the power plant's all 240 volts, but you know, the 1200 amps and the thing's got the grunt, you know, mm. there's just more, yeah, more hidden power there, sustaining power. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're the specials if you can crack them. Yeah, have you got, is there, I imagine you must have heaps, but is there one session that you relive all the time? Have you got one magic session that you go back to or you'd love to, you know? I've been asked that question a lot and one wave always pops to mind. North Narrabeen, 1967. And North the big, Narrabeen, yeah, the whole world. Yeah, I was shaping in Sydney for that summer and I had a uh, big, long period, big northeast swell and I've got, I, I had a very experimental board, a thing off to Hawaii within a couple of weeks, so I had an experimental board with me. And I caught this big, stinking, open left-hand barrel. And while I was, I got in, uh, the sun, a cloud came over the sun when I, as I took off. And I was in the barrel for so long, it seemed, and the curtain's out here, and I'm just, half crouched in this big barrel and the sun came out while I was in the barrel and you know it takes it some seconds for wow. that to happen yeah. so suddenly yeah, I'm in yeah. this green silvery curtain before that well, it changed color while you're changed in color there. while I was in the barrel oh, my Lord. so you know, it gives you some reference of how long I was in there <laughs> you know and it made the thing and it's like ah that was like the best wave I've ever had you know yeah, it yeah, felt yeah. like that yeah and early barrel riding you know the, late 60s yet, so it wasn't a common thing like today, you know, short boarders just pop in the barrel wherever they like. Mm. And we hadn't developed the top turn and you know everything was bottom turn based surfing, but that particular one being backside, I did top turn and pulled into the thing quick. Wow. Yeah. North is an insane wave, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, it's so, it's just, it is so heavily localised, it's so yeah, hard yeah. to get away from yeah. And there's a lot of aggression. What do you do? Like, I didn't surf for a long time because I knew it was so localised, and you got busy, yep. knew that people got sent in, or worse, or yep. up, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just thought, you know, there's plenty of other places to go surf. But then I remember when I did go out the first time, and got a good wave. I realised, I was like, oh, yeah, this there is, the is no other wave like this exactly. in Sydney. Like it is long and powerful and just insane. My last session there, my grandson was born, and I was went out to ride the rights. So I felt I was safe to do that. Mm. So I rode a dozen rights. No one cares too much. And I just had to be position when the biggest set came through of the day and the massive clean open left. And so I pulled into the thing and I'm, here, I'm this old 60 year old codger 
taken off on a nine-foot board, and they everyone gave it to me, and it was I had a couple of people attempted to drop, but they held back, and mm -hmm. I got the thing way down, point way down past the surf club, mm -hmm. and down you know, to me it was the wave of the day. I'm happy to paddle in and. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I hope there's no wax on my windscreen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I suspect there's probably not that many other 60-year-olds who wouldn't have been got in on. Like, do you ever get got in on now? Or do people uh, just, like, bow down, you know? No, no bow down, ever. And if someone drops in, it's because of inexperience. Mm. And I usually tolerate it, you know, yeah. unless it's a critical way. But then I don't get upset. What the heck? You know, there's another one, another one in five minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's sad sometimes, but yeah. it's a critical way. It is sad, and it's also, I think, like, people react, and I know I've done this in the past, I try and catch myself before I react, even if I feel it, but when you're in danger, when someone yeah. like, like, spits a board at you, yeah. or puts you in a position where you could get critically hurt, it's yeah. so hard not to just oh, like, just yeah. let your blood boil. Well, you've got to educate them, haven't you? you yeah. Bad like, move, bad move, that could have killed me. Yeah. yeah, like I think this was this guy at Water Goes the other day, actually. He had pointy nose longboard and I was just crouching on my little thinness and he's dropped in on me but then done a cut back I just don't think he saw me but yeah. suddenly I've got the nose of this thing coming at me so nah. I put my hand out and stopped it oh. but he's fallen off and I think he just got embarrassed and that's yeah. why he just started blowing up at me and I was no just like, way. Oh, oh, why? what are you doing? Yeah. I don't know what you want me to say right now when that's I felt like you know it's terrible yeah but I think it's just like and I can tell you my guilty confession I was at Water Goes one day and I went out with no leg rope 20, 15 years ago and I got sucked over the falls and there were a couple of backpacker girls paddling out and I know my board was wrenched out of my hands and plowed into these two girls. Mm. Oh, man, I felt so guilty. Were they okay? Yeah, they were fine, but for a moment there I thought they were going to grab a blood skull or something, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the guilty confessions. Mm. Well, it happens to everyone, and it sounds yeah. like lucky that no one actually got hurt. In yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't usually happen there, but you know the inside shorey can sometimes compound and freaky little joint that it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. There. It's a good way. Yeah, it is. Right now, banks are great. Yeah. If you can get a car park. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've just been riding a bike up, actually. Oh, yeah, so smart. The hill and so smart. Just easier. Yeah. And then you get to just drool at it, walking over the hill around that magic boardwalk and yeah. just, like, shape it out. You're going to sit. Oh, everyone's sitting out the yeah. back, but the inside is just yeah. yeah, inside's so it's crazy right. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, a, I've got an e-bike, and I've got to rig up a trailer to heading around there to what he goes. Mm. Yeah. E-bikes are the goal, I reckon. Yeah. That's just cheat code. I love it. I love that there's, there's this, like, halfway point between motorbikes and bicycles. Yeah. Right now, and yeah. And you can basically ride an electric motorbike on the footpath. Yeah. Without a helmet. Amazing, isn't it? There's no law for it. Yeah. yeah. It's so new. Exactly. <laughs> I love and the guys on skaties ripping around electric skaties, and sometimes they've got a crash helmet on them. But yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. not. It's a really interesting stage. Mm. Like, in San Sebastian, I went to the beach there last, last summer. And yeah, oh, not 19. They've got renter scooters, electric scooters, with passenger seats on the back and tires that are like six inches wide. Yeah. And they, no it's license. Vehicle, right? It's, it's a, a vehicle. vehicle. Two of you can go tripping anywhere. You know, and it's comfortable. You're sitting down on yeah. these things, scooters with pillion seats in them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Trippy. It's yeah, so it's cheating. Yeah. 
Um, so one question I, I, I did have for you as well is, I want to know who you look up to in surfing in 2020. Okay, Because cool. you seem to sort of, well for me anyway, and I'm sure like a lot of other people, and presumably every single modern shaper, yep. you're kind of at the top, everyone's looking up to you. So I'm interested to know who, who inspires you. Shaping in wise? Surf industry. Kind of everything wise, shaping, um, well, it's easy. surfing. Skip Pry, okay. San Diego, anything Skip does is wonderful. Um, great surfer, great shaper, brilliant. Um, I love Reynolds Yeager, California, Santa Barbara. He's uh, in his eighties, still surfs like a like a dancer, really discreet, ele elegant surfer. But you know he's got a place down in Costa Rica. He surfs there regularly too. Um, Joey Cabell in Honolulu, who'd be eighty and surfs unbelievably well. He's fit. Rides his bike, I don't know, 30 k's, and then goes for a surf. He runs Charlie House Restaurant in Honolulu. So they're three. See, they tend to be, they're older guys. They tend to make your heroes older than you are. Mm. But looking the other way down, Rasta, I love his surfing. He is such an amazingly elegant, powerful surfer. He's such an articulate guy as well. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. Staggering. Yeah. Um, Mick, the way he's matured into a, a wonderful man um, very not just professionally gracious he's a genuine and caring guy mm. and I, I respect Claw his mentor from Ripcurl who turned Mick into the gentleman that he is Claw's a very wise clever surfer um, there'd be another half a dozen I'll think of after you turn the phone off yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But even right here in our own factory, I love Wistie surfing and um, uh, uh, Josie Prendergast, they're, they're one of our girl surfers, is the, she's the most elegant thing on a surfboard mm. and she's so easy to watch mm. and we have a huge respect for that. I've never seen a girl surfer like her ever. Mm. She's the best. Awesome. Just exudes feminism. You know? and, and, and any man can respect that. It's not just sexy. It's not. Blah blah blah. She's this elegant girl who's just doing so naturally nice. You know? mm. Yeah, um, I admire surfing, the beauty in surfing, you know, as I said before, the art, you can measure it. Uh, you can't measure the art. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, what do you think that is then? Across like every different yep. person who's exhibited it in some way, yep. you it's, have you identified a common denominator? Yeah, yep. It's first being stoked. Yeah. Secondly, perfect position on the wave and then thirdly with with relaxed style so it cuts a lot of pro surfers out yeah but it includes a lot of fringe surfers you know mm. and it's beauty it's, it's got to have the element of beauty like Tom Curran at Jay Bay yeah they're beauty you know yeah incredible beauty um, Laird and, and, the, that, and the, the, the 2000, the anniversary wave, where he towed in a choker for the first time. Yeah. That's just elegant art. Yeah. Incredible art. Yeah, he just, it, it almost like that, that wave, the way that he rode it for me, almost looks like the wave wouldn't have made sense without him on it. Yeah. That's right. Just he just, sort of, he, he gave it perspective, he gave it the shape, and yes. And, and that, the game that, that inside drag that he did yeah. to stop himself getting You know what was what was going on there? No. They positioned the straps too far forward. And that board was shaped by Dick Brewer. 
and Dick is notorious for not putting enough tire walker in boards. Come on, Dick, sharpen up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Dick puts a lot of rolling in V action, so the boards transition from rail to rail really well. Right. But his tail rocker is always too stiff, and he and that's what Lee was having trouble with it. The nose was wanting to go under. So he had to throw himself back to keep oh, the nose up, which yeah. resulted in a hand drag. Yeah, to yeah. plane on it. He's pulling his weight back towards the back of the board. Yeah, that's, that's what, what Laird told me anyway. But that's isn't that an interesting thing that uh, that Laird on a on an absolutely monstrous beast yeah, of life and death. Life and death. It's the same word of your recognition of beauty as Joseph Prendergast yeah. in the past. Yeah. It's like there's some. It's interesting that you can achieve the same reaction or the same yeah. identification in yeah. two pretty much different sports at that stage. Yes, right? they are. <laughs> that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just rotting away, but it's now to scale. Because <laughs> I've been trying to work that out for myself, and I think what you said has kind of confirmed something that I've been suspecting, which is that it's just timing. Timing yeah. is everything, and positioning. Timing, and positioning. Just being in the right place. Yeah. And also, yeah. Which, which another one I must mention there, of course, is Steph Gilmore. Oh, yeah. I could watch her surfing all day. Yeah. Because her positioning is so good yeah. with style and elegance. So casual. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, yeah, it's radical if you follow. I mean, what's that thing she did in Bali last year or the year before that? Yeah, bang that cut back. And, man, yeah, now she's an amazing surfer. Mm. But mm. always done with style, elegance, incredible positioning. Mm. I love seeing her name come up when people say, you know, a pro or someone's being asked to be a favourite surfers because mm -hmm. it's always kind of like, I mean, it's the top three. Well, it's weird when you ask someone who their favourite female surfer is. Mm. It's kind of like well, you're loading that question there, aren't you? Yeah, it's just an, ins an inference that yeah, there's no way that they get that if you if it was just your favourite surfers that females would be in that list. Of course, but, yeah. um, that's just natural. seems to have really large. Well, I gave you like about six or seven names. Mm. Well, in there was Josie and Steph. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Case in point. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she's not reliable when you watch her yeah. out the snapper or whatever. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think the um, WSL is coming back or what's your take on that? Because it's interesting that you departed from pro surfing, feeling yeah. that it's, it's trying to quantify something that's beyond numbers and beyond scoring. Okay, we were offered to do the Noosa Festival, sponsor it with, with WSL, and we knocked it back. Um, because it's uh, we don't like the way longboarding is packaged and marketed, and they they have to be the ultimate packages and marketers. They have to be because they're an investment. Mm. So uh, no, we knocked it back, and we're glad we did because we're not a longboarding company. We're a surfing company, and you know, just longboarding competition is pretty ugly. Most of it. Well, they introduce a stress thing. They're going to get points if they walk to the nose and hang five, run back and do it again. Hey, that's not relaxed. Where's yeah, the, the crazy grace? The grace just disappeared. Mm. Yeah, so that's, yeah, we're not into the, the competitive circuit anymore. I mean, we were through the 90s because it was new and we're having a lot of fun with it when we're making exciting boards. Mm. But we fizzled out of that by the mid of 2005. We were pulling back from surfing comps again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because it does inspire me a huge amount imagining the new format that they've announced for next year. And, for longboarding. Uh, a trestle spine, or not yeah. even for longboarding, for yeah. shortboarding. Yeah, so, having a fight out at the end. Yeah. A shootout. Yeah, it's kind of good. Um, trestles, 
bit weak. Compared to Pipe. Yeah. I mean, like, Pipe's yeah, the ultimate showdown. Absolutely. Pipe Masters has been the greatest contest ever. Yeah. You know, to yeah. my money. It is the best contest ever. I've actually never been, but I'd love to. Me either. That. I just love watching it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Randy Rarick, who ran it, is a good friend of mine. And so I've got full respect for it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'd probably yeah. better let you get back We're to kind your of, life. Yeah, yeah, I'd better get going. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. What do you do outside of surfing to stay positive? Um, my wife and I do a lot of beach recreational stuff. We walk, swim. All very situation oriented. Yeah, but now we're breaking away and we're, we're looking west. Really? So, yeah, in mid 70s, then 68, and we're heading. We're going to start just doing short forays into the mountains. And we did one last year, just a tender field in the district, and we we're most impressed. So now we've bought a camper and we're going to start striking. Just two or three day runs, local, because it's so magnificent. Oh yeah. Just between here and Queensland border, up in the, underneath all the hills and mountains up there. Yeah. And then ideally I'd, I'd like to do a couple of longer trips. Mm. But um, Lynn's never been to West Oz and I've only been two or three times, so they're going to do a trial up through West Oz. Awesome. Yep. Awesome place to be hand right Yeah. yeah. Uh, we just rent one over there. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, that about estuaries. We we kayak. We kayak every estuary between Coffs Harbour and Tweed Heads. Really? Yeah. A double kayak. Awesome. And we take take lunch, a book to read when we get there. Uh, we read to each other, so we share one book all the time. We have for oh, twenty that's years. So nice. Yeah, I read a chapter. She reads a chapter. Take on all the voices. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that, man. That's oh, awesome. it's so good. And wait for a fifteen dollar novel, you know. You get so much more out. You get so much more out. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that, that's one of our chief recreations is reading to each other. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah, so we've our house is completed. We've we've built five houses in here since the late seventies, of which I only built two, but we designed all five. Mm. And they're all being difficult builds. They're all on steep, steep ground because it's cheap. And steep ground has a view. Yeah. So we've uh, built five houses now. The last one, we've just finished the gardens and all the benches and you know, I mean, benched on a steep site. Right, right. And all the veggies in and the pools in, and we've done the finished project. So we're uh, now got time to go tripping. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm still. Yeah, I'm shaping two or three boards a week and loving it. Yeah. I'm slow, I'm four hours on a shape. That's what I got this morning. It's the price of being meticulous, isn't it? Yeah. It's taking time. And looking after the client, because I do custom orders, and making sure they are getting the right board for them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a and very enjoyable game. Yeah. There's the, art, there's the fun of giving, but I'm also getting paid for it. So. Yeah, paid <laughs> yeah. for just being a master of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. Okay. you given me, basically. Nice word, thank you. All right, cool. Well, there you go, Bob. Thank you so Great much time. for chatting with me. Thank you. That was awesome. All the best for your website. Man. Thank you. <laughs> How good was that? Can't you just like absorb it, even if you've never seen or heard of Bob McTavish before? Surely you can just, surely some of that that fizz, that passion for life has just gone through your headphones into your brain and then down into your chest cavity and made you more excited to go out and do whatever the thing is that fires you up the most. It's impossible. It's so contagious. 
that was such a treat for me. And um, I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it because really I do feel so privileged to get to sit down and absorb some wisdom from a man who has been doing my favorite thing on the planet for more than twice as long as I've been alive. Oh my God, what a crazy thing to think about. And wasn't that one thing that Bob said so special about having a soundtrack for life? I think that is what gives surfing its importance for me personally. Like, I like being able, you know, the good days when they arrive when I can actually do a top turn. Yeah, that feels nice and everything. But I think the most important thing is that intimacy with nature and with the ocean and having a secondary pulse almost on the biological world so that when my own blood pressure is high, it's almost like I've got another pulse that I can fall back on and use to just calm me down, make me a better person. And I feel like that's that soundtrack to life isn't exclusive to surfing. You can achieve that anywhere just by dialing into whatever part of the environment it is that's facilitating your favorite thing to do on the planet. Anyway, that's plenty enough proselytizing from me. Before I sign off, uh, I want to say a special thank you to whoever actually did give me a star rating on iTunes. Like, that's amazing. I sort of threw that out in the last episode really half-heartedly because it's an uncomfortable thing to do. But it actually has put the biggest grit on my face that someone, actually, I think it was like two people out there, actually did give me a star rating. And anyway, I really appreciate it. It means a lot because it's just this confirmation that I'm not just talking to thin air right now. So yeah, thanks for that. And thanks to you just for listening, even if you didn't do a star rating. I mean, it's not too late. You could just go off and do it now. And I'd love you even more than I already do for doing that. But I'm just glad you've been listening. It's awesome. I'm really happy to have shared this with the whole wide world and whatever dimensions lay beyond the three that we exist in, in this crazy game of the internet that we're all playing. Cool. I'm signing off. Look out for that Chris Hemsworth movie. I'll be certainly looking for my name in the credits and talk to you again later. Peace, friends. Bye.